average, over 5,000 students at American universities are awarded PhDs in the humanities each year. Where is all this talent headed? What are these scholars doing? You're listening to Careers in the Public Humanities, a podcast that explores the range of careers open to PhDs beyond the tenure track. Each episode, we'll interview a PhD who has put their degree to use in innovative ways within cultural institutions, in digital and media production, in state or federal agencies, and other literary and cultural publics, in hopes of inspiring other humanities PhDs to broaden the view of their career possibilities. This podcast is produced by English PhD students and alumni from the University of Rhode Island and has been made possible by Humanities at Large, a URI initiative funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities Next Generation PhD Grant Program. Hello, thank you for joining us with another episode of Careers in the Public Humanities. I am going to be conducting the interview in this episode. I am Ryan Engley. We are here in the finishing room at Ranger Hall with Paul Erickson, uh, who was uh, formerly the Director of Academic Programs at the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, but is currently the Program Director for Humanities, Arts and Culture, and American Institutions, Society, and the Public Good at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Paul, how are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, so uh, just to get the ball rolling, uh, I think for me and for our listeners, I would love to know uh, your professional journey. How did you uh, get to where you are now? Uh, you know, maybe if you do, if it's not too much to go back, like starting in like graduate school, how did you get the idea of where you're going to go, et cetera, these kinds of things? Sure. I'll go back even farther than that. Nice. Okay. Um, uh, you were seven years old. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, I... Uh, got where I am through what at the time felt like a random assortment of circumstances. But fantastic. Uh, looking back, uh, it actually all sort of makes sense. So uh, I was an English major as an undergraduate in mm-hmm. college uh, and uh, thought about applying to graduate school my senior year and did so and got in where I wanted to go. Nice. Uh, and my uh, undergraduate thesis advisor said, you know, graduate students have a much higher chance of finishing, and they just seem much happier if they take a couple years off between college and graduate schools. So mm. uh, he encouraged me to do that. I took his advice. Um, mm. Can I ask, is that true, or is that just like, was that, did he just think that? Or, or I think he did think that. I think it is also it true. I mean, I, I don't know the data, the data on it, on but that, I yeah. think... Um, uh, if I were to ever run the humanities universe, I would require that. That's I, awesome. I don't think any graduate program should take a student directly out of college. That's um, interesting. Uh, I think you just enjoy it a lot more if mm. you've had a work experience. Um, mm-hmm. So I uh, um, went, uh, I'd gone to college in Chicago. I moved to New York and worked in publishing uh, briefly, as everybody with a BA in English is supposed to do. Um <laughs> rapidly figured out that I, I did not like working in publishing um, and so got a job at the Social Science Research Council in New York, which is an academic nonprofit. Uh, I worked for a uh, program in international peace and security studies that uh, funded fellowships, uh, organized conferences, uh, published uh, research in the field. Uh, I had no background in uh, security studies, but mm-hmm. that was the job that was open. Um, and that was the first time that I realized that there were jobs at places that were attached to the academic world, that weren't universities, yeah. but needed a PhD to work there. Right. Um, and that was sort of what set me on my course. So uh, I went to graduate school in American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin with mm-hmm. uh, the intention of never going on the academic job market. Okay. I, I never, <laughs> want, never wanted to teach, um, never did go on the academic job market. Don't regret that uh, for a second. Okay. Um, and uh, so 
I did my PhD in American studies. I worked on 19th century print culture, popular fiction, mm-hmm. uh, sensationalism. Uh, and along the way, I sort of took opportunities to do different kinds of work. So I worked as a freelance editor mm. um, for many years. I sort of fell uh, ass backwards into working for a small management consulting firm in New York. <laughs> um, uh, a colleague that I'd worked for at SSRC was doing IT work there, and they needed uh, someone over the summer. So I wound up working there on a freelance basis for a couple of years. And mm-hmm. then when I was finishing my PhD, I was living in Boston uh, and uh, the consulting firm that I'd worked for before needed to hire a full-time person. And I wanted to move back to New York. So I did. Uh, and I worked for a, for the consulting firm for about four years. It was very small. Uh, yeah. It was three people when I um, started working there. And then the founder passed away. And so it was two of us for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great experience. I took that job um, thinking that it would be a good way to see lots of different kinds of organizations and do some thinking about what kind of place I might want to work. Um, we worked for both for-profit and non-profit clients, and so I got to see a full spectrum of uh, organization types from sort of small founder-driven nonprofits mm. to Fortune 100 companies. Um, and it was just a great experience to see lots of how lots of different kinds of places worked, mm. what different kinds of opportunities there were, um, And uh, when I was working there, uh, the position of director of academic programs at the American Antiquarian Society came open. I'd had a fellowship there uh, when I was in graduate school. Uh, And as I was working in consulting, I was continuing to do research and write and present at conferences and publish articles. And um, so I was up at AAS doing research um, for a couple days. And uh, one of the librarians there said, oh, we, you know, we were talking the other day about who would be good for this job and your name came up so you should apply for it uh, Excellent. and I did and I worked there for nine years so it was great that's awesome um, just uh, before we get to uh, from there to your current position mm-hmm. I just want to ask um, that so when uh, I, I end up teaching narrative a lot, and I'm not have have this not be like a self indulgent story, but like the there's a, a way, and I think that you sort of hinted at this like. Um, one of the ways that I distinguish between like like a narrative that's interesting, or even this can be student writing that's interesting, and student writing that is maybe struggling, or even is the difference between and then and but and therefore. Mm-hmm. So like uh, a bad story about episode of TV, like it just seems to be sort of wayward. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. You know, like uh, and sometimes my mom tells stories like that and she knows she's a bad storyteller. And so, and so I tell her like, no mom, button therefore we need the, the tension, like the thing that between it. And so I guess as you were uh, talking about your, you know, the, the brief sketch of your professional history, I was thinking that, uh, I mean, it seems like it, it was, and then one thing to another, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think that that's, that's what, what you, there seemed to be, uh, what was the intention, I guess, I think between some of these moves and what was like, or what was some of the things that you, I don't know, discovered as you were going along, like what pushed you towards certain, uh-huh. uh, decisions and, and opportunities? Uh, sometimes it was professionally driven. Sometimes mm-hmm. it was personally driven. Uh, and I think, um, uh, that's what I mean by the sort of retrospective, yeah. uh, the randomness of, of how things played out. Uh, right. And I think that's how it works for most people in their lives. Yeah. Um, I will say that the um, the job I got at the SSRC, which was in 1993, was the last job that I got through that was not through a personal connection. So mm. every position I've had in my career since then has been through someone I know who yeah. has uh, made a recommendation. And so... Um, it has been sort of an and then process, just as opportunities have emerged. Sure, um, but for uh, for me, um, so th- making the switch from publishing to to working at a nonprofit out of college, uh, it was 
um, because I wanted to be in a more academic environment. Yeah. Um, I'd learned that publishing was really boring. I was working for a legal publisher. Right. Um, which in retrospect was kind of fascinating because they were actually on the forefront of uh, digital publishing. Oh, that's really cool. uh, Because they, uh, I worked in the tax law department and they Mm. published, their business was selling quarterly updates of uh, tax legislation to law firms, Mm -hmm. um, which was an obvious candidate for digitization because otherwise you were sending out paper updates um, all the time, every few months. Yeah. yeah. Um, And so that was where I first heard of SGML as they were starting uh, sort of launching a digital product there. Mm. So in retrospect, that was kind of interesting. Mm. But I wanted to be in a more academic environment, and that's uh, why I went to um, SSRC. There's your button there for right? yeah. Um, yeah. And then, um, you know, after that, it was uh, – some of it was circumstantially driven. I mean, I was ready to move out of Boston and move back to New York, mm-hmm. um, and that's why I pursued the consulting opportunity – uh, and, you know, frankly, we were talking a little bit before about how nobody talks about money in the humanities. Um, yeah. You know, the first reason anybody takes a job is they want to get paid and they need health insurance and yes. they need to pay their rent. And Absolutely. So, um, yeah. uh, I, uh, you know, sort of when you get down to first principles, when you're talking to anybody about why they do anything, it's mm. because they get paid to do it and they need health insurance. And For sure. Yeah. want to pay their rent. So um, <laughs> Yeah, the survival aspects. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but for me, the the move to consulting was a way to sort of help figure out what the next thing was going to be. I sort of intentionally thought about it as, um, as a, a learning process. Mm-hmm. And the, the woman who founded the firm that I worked for, um, her background was in uh, organization design and development, but she liked hiring smart, interesting people from other fields mm. because she figured she could teach them how to do the consulting part but she couldn't teach people how to be curious and good writers. And that's really, uh, that's so funny. Someone said that my friend of mine just got hired by Apple. He's also mm-hmm. in a he's this is he's going to do this over the summer. He's at a PhD program in uh, in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I don't want to out him or whatever because he doesn't know I'm going to talk about him right now. Um, but in the interview process, he was like making an apology for like having this English degree, this English background. And the, the person who was hired said like, look, I could teach you how to fix a phone. I could teach you how to code in this, but I c- cannot teach you how to think critically or to right. be like, like empathetic to other people. And so like, right. anyway, that's interesting. Yeah. So the other people that, that, uh, I worked with when I, um, uh, was working there as a freelancer, when the firm was a little bit bigger, there were, um, poets and composers and, uh, that's fascinating. Uh, musicians and, um, urban planners. So it was a, a really interesting mix of people. Um, and so I took that job thinking that it would be, um, a way to sort of try lots of different things on and then yeah. the antiquarian society, uh, position. I'd never thought, um, that I was going to wind up working at a library. I, mm-hmm. I'm not a li- trained as a librarian. I never thought that I would wind up working someplace where I had had a fellowship. Yeah. Um, and so that just, when that came along, it felt like that was the job that I'd gone to graduate school to get. And yeah. it was a chance to um, be in a position where I was helping other people with their research and their projects mm. uh, rather than focusing on my own, which was more appealing to me. Yeah. Um, and also to work with probably the best collection of early Americana in the world. Um, Shout which, out. Which from a uh, book history standpoint was really exciting. Um, so it was a chance to combine my own academic interests with uh, with professional interests Um uh, yeah, it was fantastic. That's great. Uh, you mentioned other projects mm-hmm. working on them for other people. What were um, either during this time or currently like? Mm-hmm. What's what's some of the I don't know most uh, 
for the, I mean, you know, the writ large uh, topic of this uh, podcast being mm -hmm. public humanities, uh, what was the most, uh, you know, what was the most fascinating to you uh, project that you helped somebody else with uh, in oh, this field? Yeah. Uh, that's kind of impossible to answer. So in, in my <laughs> job at the Antiquarian Society, I was in charge of um, all of the academic fellowship uh, programs that sure. the Antiquarian Society offered. So um, over my nine years there, I think probably somewhere between 350 and 400 academic fellows came through. Um, I want to hear the top 200. Yeah, no, I, 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 so um, uh, picking a favorite is, uh, is, is difficult, mm -hmm. um, if not impossible. But uh, just for me, helping... Uh, scholars uh, come into the Antiquarian Society, which is an experience I had had as a fellow, mm -hmm. and um, make sense of both the collection, uh, which is incredibly rich, but not organized in a way that's easily accessible, mm -hmm. um, and also helping them uh, sort of make the right connections with the staff. So at any library that you go to, um, there are lots of libraries that have great collections, but mm -hmm. it's the, the curatorial staff in particular that are really... Um, the resource and yeah. the curators at the Antiquarian Society were great uh, and just knew the collection better than anybody in the world. And mm -hmm. so a lot of my job was helping just make those personal connections between scholars and people on staff who could be most helpful to them. That's excellent. Um, and so, it, I mean, for me, it's more fun seeing my name in someone's acknowledgments than it is <laughs> seeing my name on the cover of a book. And oh. so that was... Um, uh, that was really rewarding. That's awesome. That's great. Um, probably uh, going to come back toward the end about um, other work. Uh, sure. But I do want to uh, talk about your current job yeah. as a program director at the American Academy. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the transition from uh, the American Antiquarium Society like? Uh, what occasioned that switch? Was uh, it different? Yeah. So again, uh, it was partly um, logistical, partly professional. So my wife uh, teaches at Harvard. Okay. Uh, and we were living in Rhode Island while I was working at uh, the Antiquarian Society. So I was driving to Worcester every day, and she was uh, taking the train to Boston. And right. both of our commutes were long, and mm. we uh, had a baby, and... Um, uh, when he was very small, it was okay for him to be spending an hour and a half in the car with me um, right. back and forth to Worcester um, to take care. But as he got older and mo more mobile, that was uh, less appealing. And, and discerning. Yes. Maybe he didn't want to be in the car. Right. Yeah. He didn't yeah. want to be in that car. Yeah. Not, not with me. Right. Uh, sure. <laughs> so uh, it was a chance to simplify the logistics of our lives mm -hmm. um, uh by getting jobs that are half a mile away from each other. Um, it does seem simple. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and also, I'd been uh, at AAS for nine years, and I absolutely loved it. And I met my wife in the reading room there. Oh, and, that's great. Uh, our son took his first steps um, in the house where my office was, so I have enormous... Uh, personal affection for the institution. Yeah, that's um, great. That's but awesome. I was ready to try something different uh, yeah. and to sort of... Um, uh, think about things from a sort of bigger picture, uh, higher level perspective, mm -hmm, uh, which mm -hmm. is uh, something that the Academy does. And so uh, I started there in fall of 2016. Okay. And for uh, uh, folks who don't know, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences was founded in 1780 uh, uh, by wow. John Adams and uh, uh, James Bowden and a group of other uh, Massachusetts patriots. Um, and it's the Massachusetts counterpart to the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, gotcha. which had been founded sooner. Mm -hmm. uh, so its purpose is to bring together leaders from all walks of life um, uh, to uh, create knowledge that will be useful to society. Right, um, sure. In that 18th century sort of sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so uh, the form that, has, that it is in now, uh, 238 years later, uh, is it 
is both an honorary membership society mm-hmm. uh, and sort of a think tank. So gotcha. we uh, elect members every year, leaders from all uh, academic fields as well as uh, public life, journalism, mm. uh, law, business. Um, and then uh, we conduct research projects uh, that are generally policy-oriented in five program areas. So okay. the, two that, the two that I uh, oversee, uh, Humanities, Arts, and Culture, and American Institutions, which is kind of our social science program area, mm-hmm. um, education, global security, and uh, science, engineering, and technology. So we typically do sort of multi-year uh, research projects um, that involve large commissions of both Academy members and non-members, mm-hmm. um, publish occasional publications along the way, and right. then uh, issue final reports that generally have some sort of policy recommendations either for government or for uh, the education world, for nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, lots of different uh, institutions sort of get roped in uh, under the, the rubric depending on uh on the focus of the project. That's great. You know, it might make sense uh, to for to get into this now, just because sure. we're talking about it. But um, I'm not sure if it was today. I mean, it was it was new to me. I saw it on on the uh, American Academy website. There was a uh, a report published about uh, job. It was a job report mm-hmm. for humanities degrees yep. uh, and uh, outcomes and uh, compared to other fields. Uh, wh- what was your did you oversee that? Like, so uh, yeah. that report came out from the Academy's Humanities Indicators Project, okay. um, which is uh, based in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Humanities Indicators uh, is a project that is designed to uh, collect and present uh, data about the humanities, both the academic humanities and public humanities um, writ large, um, by collecting what are called indicators, which are sets of data that... Uh, are collected multiple times so mm-hmm. that they can uh, measure change over time. Um, and so the it's available through the Academy's website. I encourage all of your listeners to visit. Uh, it's a great resource, um, mm. just an incredible amount of data. Um, also supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities. So Fantastic. Uh, thank That's you, good. Um, uh, And uh, the report that you mentioned um, mm. is uh, a report on humanities majors in the workforce. Right. Uh, looking at sort of what the career outcomes are for people who have uh, majored in humanities fields, um, uh, you know, really trying to dispel the you know the barista myth that right, you, know, you right. major in English or right. art history and uh, you're going to wind up uh, serving coffee, right. um, uh, which very few people do. Um, <laughs> uh, That's very good to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's um, uh, it uh, collects a great, uh, a really fantastic amount of data um, about. Uh, career outcomes, so what fields uh, humanities majors wind up in, um, the job, the positions in those fields that they have. Um, uh, it measures uh, um, things like average salaries over time. Right. Uh, but I think the uh, important thing that it takes in the cons- that the report presents um, is also career satisfaction, which is uh, yeah. harder to measure mm-hmm. and, you know, the data uh, may not be as comprehensive, um, but it's... Uh, you know, for anybody who's thinking about what they want to do with their lives, yeah. um, that should be a question that's sort of at the front of mind. Is yeah. is it something that uh, is it going to put me in positions that I'm going to like and that are going to make me happy? And so, what the um, data in the report show is that, as you might expect, uh, humanities majors tend to make less money than engineering mm-hmm. majors. Um, 
although over time uh, the gap closes. Um, they make uh, significantly less earlier in their careers, but uh, it closes um, over time, and yep. advanced degrees make a difference. Mm. Um, Is that correlated? I thought I remembered not this report, mm-hmm. but another report uh, correlated that change to job satisfaction, which is exactly mm-hmm. what this was, yeah. And so it's hard to say. I okay. mean, you know, it, it, there probably is data that shows that as people make more money, uh, they are more satisfied with their jobs, although I know that there's data that shows that there's a, a point at which uh, satisfaction doesn't increase any longer. Right. I um, think I – well, I'm, I'm sorry. I just want to recast yeah. that as what I meant was that people who – did a, a humanities degree mm-hmm. and did a humanities job because they did that thing that they mm-hmm. liked and maybe rejected the idea to you know major in business or something. Right. Like it was because they they enjoyed that thing that that was that was p- uh, positively correlated with closing that gap a little bit. Maybe although yeah. I mean uh, you know the majority of humanities uh, majors don't wind up in humanities jobs because right. outside of teaching um, there aren't a huge number of what right. we would call humanities jobs. So it's um, it shows that humanities majors wind up doing all kinds of things, mm. um, but and enjoy them just as well, if not more, than people who majored in other gotcha. fields. Um, uh, so you know, a lot of humanities majors become lawyers, for instance. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so, you know, it's hard to say. There probably isn't data that shows you know didn't does an English major enjoy being a lawyer more than a political but science sure, major sure. does. Th- that makes sense. Of um, uh, but uh, Overall, what the report shows is that um, uh, if your kid wants to major in the humanities, it, they are not uh, destroying their future prospects uh, of <laughs> right. uh, both financial security and happiness. Uh, <laughs> and, and in fact, um, and you can do just as many things with a humanities major as, as you can with any other kind of undergraduate degree. So That's uh, great to see that in that work. I think we'll try to link it, actually, to this podcast. Yeah, if, you, if yeah. you could link it, it would be great. Yeah. Um, and uh, if any of your listeners have children in college, think about to go to college, um, really encourage them to look at it because, yeah. um, you know, what we, what we heard a lot is that, um, you know, students come into college thinking they want to major in the humanities, but... Um, uh, whether it's family pressure or mm-hmm. self-induced pressure, and a lot of it is driven by you know college costs, right? The yeah, college is so expensive, and people are coming out with so much debt that it's difficult to rationalize majoring in something which is not immediately legible as having a career outcome. English doesn't isn't a job in the same way that engineering right. is right. a job. Yeah, right. you know English presumably when you go to college. Right. So why right. do you? Um, why, yeah, sure. Uh, why do you need to major in that? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, w- I was wondering, I, I wrote this down as you were saying, um, it, we could talk more about the, the report or, or with these sort of ramifications uh-huh. uh, a little bit, but why do you think the myth persists? Because that I find intriguing. Like I I, I wrote, uh, um, and I wouldn't even know how to find this on our website, but when uh, we were working or when we were working on the, uh, the NEH grant that this podcast grew out of, uh-huh. uh, one of the things that I, uh, that I wrote was a, a, a little piece about um, how well exactly this like the mm-hmm. research that was out there about um, humanities degrees and the value and that right. like you know how um, you know flexible they can be and how the outcomes are not as dire as like uh, you know um, was it uh, we, I think uh, Rubio said something like we need less philosophers and right. more welders and, right but and Obama may had the famous quote about our, our history majors um, yeah um, you know I, I don't know enough about the the data in terms of who's going to college now versus mm-hmm. 25, 30 years ago. Sure. Um, I think part of it uh, is 
that as more Americans go to college, a smaller percentage of them are going to liberal arts colleges and getting liberal arts degrees. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think people uh, are in part basing their concerns on their own experiences um, that they want. um, uh, If they went to college and majored in a a sort of pre-professional field, that that's what they want for their children because that's the experience they've had. Um, I think a lot of it is is driven by the increase in college costs Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that it's... um, uh, it's really difficult to rationalize mm-hmm. uh, for anybody, but you know, maybe particularly for first-generation college students sure, of course. or students who are taking on a really large burden of debt, um, to major the decision to major in something that isn't going to have a clear professional um, uh, goal at the end of it, mm-hmm. uh, and so. You know, it's one thing to um, decide to major in English or art history um, if you're coming out to co- coming out of college, you know, relatively close to debt free. But mm. uh, you know, if if you've got one hundred fifty thousand dollars in undergraduate debt, yeah. um, it's a more frightening prospect. Mm. Um, so I think it's um, it's partly driven by that. It's partly driven by the rise in. Um, uh, the culture of uh, advanced placement testing. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, students are taking a lot more AP tests, and they are um, coming into college with a lot more credit, college mm-hmm. credit, which is again partly driven by costs. But that means that uh, at a lot of schools, students just are able to use that credit for electives, and right, so right. they're not taking mm-hmm. the humanities courses that they might otherwise uh, have taken if they weren't coming in with a year's full, a uh, year full of. Yeah. Uh, of AP credit. That's super interesting. I would have never thought about that. That's great. Um, do you, how do I want to formulate this question? Uh, th- I mean, this, I don't know. This is, this is definitely a, uh, like a, a question I'm asking you to pontificate. I'm not sure that what, if that there's data <laughs> on this, but, um, do you think that, I mean, are there, maybe I'll phrase it this way. Uh, are there measures that you think like, um, I don't know, English departments, uh, could, enact to counter the narrative do you think it should be countered or like or should it, i don't know like like how mm-hmm. how should um i guess individual like it's probably hard to think about that, that way but like how how should uh, english in general and then maybe perhaps even like individual institutions like counter that idea? uh it's, it's you know it's hard to say what individual departments can do mm-hmm. um uh I think a lot of it has to come from from colleges and universities uh, more broadly, not just individual departments. Gotcha. Um, you know, departments have uh, a vested interest in how many students they have in their classes and how many students decide to major in things because those numbers are what determine uh, at research universities how many graduate students departments mm-hmm. can take uh, and how many faculty they can hire. Yeah. Uh, and so... Um, I mean, the number of students taking classes has a really profound ripple effect sort of across the humanities disciplines overall. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I mean, thinking specifically about English departments, I think um, one thing English departments could do is to advocate for uh, keeping uh, undergraduate writing, introductory writing courses taught in English departments. Mm -hmm. So a lot of universities... um, uh, Writing introductory writing courses are being spun off into other uh, writing programs. So yeah. writing, or mm-hmm. you know, writing in engineering, or mm-hmm. writing for pre-meds, and so they're not mm-hmm. being taught by people in English departments. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, to the extent that uh, 
learning how to write clearly and well is something that uh, English faculty feel is their area of expertise. Mm-hmm. I think um, uh, trying to keep those courses in the English departments um, is something that they could do. But I think, um, you know, there's a there's a lot of conversation about the declining number of humanities majors sure, right general, now, which yeah. I, you know, uh, I haven't seen mm-hmm. totally uh, comprehensive data on this, but anecdotally I think is true. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that course enrollments are down. And okay. so, um, you know, when universities are allocating budgets for departments, um, you know, they can decide to do it by number of majors or by number of butts in seats in humanities classes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that there probably isn't a hugely significant decline in the number of students that are taking humanities classes. And so um, uh, to the extent that individual departments can advocate for that Mm. uh, as the measure on which they should be evaluated rather than the number of people that decide to major, major in something. And then, you know, a a last thing I'll say is Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, the gateway into majors for a lot of students, uh, is, is the class that the classes they take in their first year of college. Mm -hmm. That's also the thing that pushes a lot of students out of (laughs) things that they were thinking about majoring in. Uh, you know, the first, uh, people take organic chemistry for a semester and suddenly they're not pre-med majors anymore. Um, And so, uh, you know, to the extent that departments, can have their best teachers teaching those first year classes yeah. um, as a way to draw students into the major. Um, uh, I think that would make a lot of sense. That's interesting. You said that I, I saw, I wish I remembered the name of this. I'm not sure if this was on the Chronicle or, or not, but there was a, uh, along those lines, mm-hmm. this idea that like uh, new hires or like, like a tenure track uh, professor should be teaching mm-hmm. those classes right. as a way of like, uh, keeping or growing the major, like keeping right. students in it. Is that, like, I thought that was a very interesting idea. And that, you know, and that is kind of sometimes set up uh, in opposition to uh, adjuncts uh, teaching those first-year classes, which I'm not comfortable with the argument that adjuncts aren't good teachers of um, because frequently uh, they're, they're fantastic teachers. Um, but I think um, uh, making sure that the people who are teaching the first-year classes sort of have a vested interest in the overall health of the department, which for me also means making adjuncts sort of permanent parts of teaching faculty. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, along the current tenure model or some other, Mm -hmm. um, uh, some other model, but um, just making sure that the people who are teaching first year students um, have a vested interest in making them become second year students Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and majors. Mm. That's great. Um, How would you define the public humanities? Uh, so I think, uh, it's a term I'm not wild about. Um, that's an excellent way to start. Uh, and I think we, uh, need to be specific about what we're trying to say when we say public humanities, are we talking about Mm -hmm. humanities for a public audience or are we talking about, uh, the public doing humanities work? So Mm. I guess the question is, is it a question, um, are we talking about audience or are we talking about practice? Um, Mm. because I think, Mm -hmm. uh, it means, different things depending on what the goals are. So, um, I mean, if we're talking about how to reach a broader audience with humanities scholarship, um, I think there are things uh, that people in the humanities can do um, 
in terms of form and content Mm -hmm. and medium uh, that will make their work more accessible and more engaging to a general public audience. Um, But I think it's more interesting to think about um, the public as practitioners of the humanities. Mm. And and, and that requires us to think more specifically about sort of what the humanities owns, uh, sort of what the humanities, what's unique to the humanities. So Mm -hmm. I think every every academic discipline uh, asks a couple questions. Uh, it's, those questions are, um, why is this thing the way that it is and, and how does it work? Mm-hmm. So um, uh, kind of what defines a discipline is answering what the this is. Mm-hmm. So is, it's, is it, how does, why is this tree the way it is, or this fish, or this subatomic particle, mm-hmm. or this liver, mm-hmm. or, or this law, or this poem, or this song? Um, so it's that subject that in part defines uh, what what a discipline is and what its area of expertise is. But then I think it's also uh, what they do with the answers to those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the humanities uh, sort of owns... Uh, any um, uh, any sort of approaches or um, bodies of knowledge, I would say that they are um, uh, reflection. So the humanities mm. are concerned with meaning, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and uh, they're also concerned with context mm-hmm. in a way that other disciplines aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think if you think about the humanities in that way, um, you can really see that that there are members of the public doing humanities work in lots of different ways, whether it's, uh, you know, book clubs where people get together and talk about why is this book the way that it is and what does it mean? Or uh, they're doing family histories or they're doing um, historical work about their neighborhoods um, uh, or they are, you know, trying to talk to their kids about how to be ethical people and how to make good decisions. I mean, those are, you know, fundamentally philosophical discussions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think thinking about ways that humanities scholars can engage with people who are doing that those kinds of humanities activities rather than just saying, okay, here's a more accessible version of my scholarly sure. argument um, for you to digest mm-hmm. and um, maybe talk about, maybe not, is, uh, is a more interesting way to think about it, maybe. Um, and I think it's also uh, important both for the arts and the humanities to draw some clear lines about what arts... Uh, and what artists do and what humanity scholars do. And I think, um, you know, a lot of, uh, whether it's state humanities councils or also state arts councils mm-hmm. or um, lots of, you know, funders um, fund both arts and humanities programs. Uh, and I think it's um, it diminishes uh, what is unique and special about the arts to say that um, putting on a play is a humanities enterprise. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. having a conversation about the play, um, that's humanities work. Right, right. um, The play itself is art. And so I think, um, you know, and there are complicated, you know, institutional reasons within universities and other places for why this gets collapsed. But I think... um, I think being clear about what the humanities is and what it does and also what it doesn't do is really important. Mm, that's great. I, um, you're making me think about uh, the, the sciences writ large uh, for, you know, there was a science walk on Washington, for example. Right. Um, and 
it's not going to go to a political place. So it's going to be okay. But what I, one thing that I that um, that I see, I think. Um, I see, uh, like Bill Gates recently said that like the uh, understanding of basic science is, is poor in, in American society generally, mm -hmm. and that that's a step that they need to take. Uh, and I, I think that that would be fine to increase the understanding of basic science, but I actually kind of think that's the wrong way. I think that this is actually where the humanities needs to be. Mm -hmm. For me, I don't understand climate science. I think I may have said this on a previous uh, podcast. Like, I don't, I don't, I, but I know who's like telling me the truth and I know who's, like trying to get away with something, you know, right. and, and that, that sort of discernment is, I think, part and parcel of what we do. And so, yes, it'd be good if everybody understood basic science better, but I mm -hmm. think that, like, the kinds of, um, you know, uh, critical thinking and discernment that, like, can be done in, in humanities departments and mm -hmm. courses, I think that's very important, and that needs to be uh, uh, more generally understood as having value and being right. good. Yeah, and I think sort of the humanities version of... Uh, not understanding basic science is not enough people understand basic rhetoric mm -hmm. uh, and basic research well enough because those are the things that you can use to evaluate arguments mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, to consider whether or not uh, a claim is based in evidence or not. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, maybe instead of public humanities, the way I would think about it is applied humanities. You know, people talk about mm -hmm. sort of the, the pure sciences and the applied sciences, mm -hmm. and I don't... Um, uh, I don't really like talking about the pure humanities, but <laughs> sure. I think thinking about um, uh, the applied humanities instead of the public humanities mm -hmm. as um, sort of ways that people use the humanities in their daily lives um, uh, is a maybe a more productive way to think about it. Um, but I think, uh, you know, a big part of it, uh, the challenge is that a lot of people, you know, the humanities as a category really only makes sense in the university context, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... Um, it is used to refer to a set of disciplines within a college or university. And so if you ask the average person on the street, um, and this is actually a project we've been working on designing a survey of public uh, opinions about the humanities. Oh, cool. Um, uh, you know, most people don't know what they are. Mm -hmm. uh, most people think it means humanitarian. And so sure. they think the humanities mean you give money to charity. Mm -hmm. and you're nice to animals. <laughs> um, uh, and so... It's partly a marketing problem. It's partly a terminology problem. Um, but I think um, humanities scholars have to make come up with ways to make clear to people sort of what the actual work of humanities is, sort of mm -hmm. what um, uh, humanities research and writing looks like, um, and sort of how that applies to their everyday lives. And also, I think, um, just spreading the message that... Uh, that the STEM fields don't own discovery, mm. um, which is nice. a big challenge. Um, uh, so there's this, I think a lot of people have the impression that, well, we know, we know everything about history or literature. Sure. You know, there's not new. Cause it happened. Uh, right. It's happened and, you know, and everything's digitized and online. So, um, there's nothing new. Um, and so that the STEM fields are the only place where discovery happens. And I think, um, you know, making clear to people that a, there's a lot of, uh, stuff in humanities fields that we don't know mm -hmm. yet um, because either the documents aren't accessible or they're incomplete mm -hmm. um, or there's just stories that haven't been told because we haven't had the tools, um, whether intellectual or, or um, technical before to tell them, mm -hmm. um, I think is really important. Um, and again, I think that goes back to uh, the conversation we had earlier about undergraduate majors, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not... Um, 
it can help dispel the idea that the humanities are just like studying dead books by dead people. Right, right, of course. Um, but that it's actually a place where uh, new knowledge is being created. Mm, that's very nice. Back more specifically to you and something that I know that you've talked about. Um, you have this, and I think I would encourage anybody to take a look at this. We could link this to, um, you have a, uh, a published, I believe it's a published talk that you gave about how not to write your second book. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, I was reading that. I thought that was, it was great. It was full of good humor and really, really great advice. Um, I would ask uh, for our listeners uh, to sort of, if you could, well, maybe one, talk about that, that talk, but then adapt it for uh, applying for external funding sure. as a graduate student. I think that, um, I know personally this this uh, funding that is available at the university, that makes sense to me. Funding that is available externally is a little more, uh, I don't know, mystical and seems like harder to uh, like to, to conceptualize what is it that, that people on the other end would want to be reading from me, what I should be saying, how I should be like uh, talking about my project, things like that. So um, how would you ta- uh, you know how should how should one? either not uh, apply for external research or how should one do it? Yeah, yeah it's easier to, uh, to say how not to do it. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I won't talk too much about that um, that talk. It was part of a panel at the um, Society for Historians of the Early American Republic Conference. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, all of the panelist talks are up on the uh, on that site, uh, on the Junto. So I would encourage everybody um, to read them. As someone who has not written a first book, much less a second book, um, uh, my advice on how not to write a second book um, should probably be taken with an enormous grain of salt. But um, <laughs> in terms of applying for outside funding, uh, you know, my experience of this world is from um, uh, a library uh, that w- grants fellowships mm. to graduate students to come do research there. So there are lots of different uh, types of institutions in the humanities ecosystem that give fellowships like that, uh, art museums, libraries, historic sites, um, Professional society societies have uh, fellowships for graduate students, um, so there are lots of different opportunities that uh, you know. So depending on people's projects, um, there are things that will make more or less sense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but just in terms of sort of ways to think about applying for uh, outside funding as a graduate student, um, the most important thing to do if you're applying. Uh, especially to a library collection, is mm-hmm. to contact people at the uh, at wherever you're applying beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, tell them that you are planning to apply for a fellowship. Uh, give them a brief description of your project um, and ask them if there are materials in the collection that aren't immediately apparent uh, on their website um, that mm. you should be aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know of any uh, library collection in the United States that is completely cataloged and where everything is... Uh, online and mm. so um, and even if it is online online catalogs are sometimes wonky and you, you, know, you don't always find stuff so mm. um, that's the most important thing uh, you can do I mean if possible go in person yeah. um, and uh, when you do go in person like don't be a jerk be nice to the people who work there <laughs> that um, was the first I was uh, going to be a jerk I was making demands yeah don't do that yeah. um, uh, because uh, you know s- all the staff members at the Antiquarian Society would look over the stack of applications, and if somebody yeah. uh, was in there who had, uh, you know, mishandled materials when they came right. in or was rude to staff, um, yeah. they would uh, they would let me know. Um, mm-hmm. So that's really important. But it's just, I mean, getting a sense of um, what's there that might not be apparent is really important mm. um, because it gives the selection committee uh, uh, the confidence that you've you've done your homework, mm-hmm. um, uh, and then. 
the other thing I would say is that um, it's important to just understand how the selection process works. And so um, for most most fellowship competitions like that, um, it's more a process of weeding things out than mm-hmm. it is plucking gems out of uh, um, out of this big sea of muck because every fellowship competition gets applications. For, they get more applications than they can fund, and almost mm-hmm. all of them are for plausible, qualified projects. Right. And so, um, you know, when I worked at the Antiquarian Society, we could have said yes to 80% of the applications we got, mm-hmm. um, and that would have been great, and people would have had a great experience. We just didn't have enough money to do that. Yeah, and yeah. so um, uh, you're really looking just as much um, – to not give a committee a reason to say no, mm-hmm. uh, as you are um, uh, looking for uh, to give them a reason to say yes, gotcha. um, and so you know look at projects that um, uh, the institution has funded in the last few years, and mm-hmm. if there's one that sounds really similar to what you're proposing, spin yours in a different way, mm-hmm. um, so that it doesn't sound like they would be funding the same thing again um, uh, for a second year in a row, because uh, libraries don't usually like to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're applying for a short-term fellowship someplace, just remember that you're not um, you're not going to research your entire dissertation in one or two months, right. and so you need to um, focus on the piece uh, that you want to work on that's appropriate to those collections. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I would usually encourage people um, uh, if if it's you know a, th- a two-page. Uh, proposal that's requested, the first third should focus on the overall project and its significance. The second third should focus on uh, the chapter or the piece that you want to work on mm-hmm. at that library, and the, the last third should focus on the specific materials there that you want to use. Gotcha. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and then, um, you know, selection committees are, uh, for the most part, not compensated. They do this work as service to the profession, mm-hmm. and so uh, don't get on people's nerves. And <laughs> um, uh, 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 remove anything that might possibly be considered jargon, um, disciplinary jargon from your proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, and the best way to do that is to ask somebody from another field to read it mm-hmm. um, because all, all the selection committees are going to be made up of people from different disciplines. And so what what you think is totally uh, you know accessible and non-jargony language may strike somebody from a political science department or a history department is like, oh, God, you don't talk that way. Um, <laughs> So ask people uh, from other fields uh, to read your proposal and make sure that there's not um, uh, anything in there that, that sounds crazy. Um, in terms of recommendation letters, this is always a question people have. Um, yeah. I think uh, a strong letter from somebody who knows your work really well is yeah. more effective than um, a letter from a big-name person who doesn't really know you all that much. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, so just in terms of thinking who you, who you ask for letters and that's something to keep in mind. Um, don't ask any British people for letters. <laughs> British people write terrible letters. Um, <laughs> there are very different national cultures about what constitutes a good recommendation letter. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and in the UK, a good, uh, a glowing recommendation yeah. is that, um, uh, as far as I know, Ryan appears to be of sound mind, uh, and does not seem to be lying about who he says he is. Um, <laughs> do you know this from, uh, from 30 rock? There's this, um, have you ever seen the show? Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. When, uh, when, when Liz publishes, uh, her book, uh, she says, Jack, they used your quote and it says on the back lemon numbers among my employees. <laughs> That's a quote, right? Like yeah. That's <laughs> um, yeah, that would be a great recommendation if you were applying to, um, uh, for a job in the UK. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, 
And, you know, I'm sure that when people in Britain read letters from American academics, it feels like like a puppy is jumping all over them. It's four pages about how this is the best student I've ever had and here are the eight million reasons why. Yeah. Um, uh, but so that's just something to, uh, something to keep in mind. That's really um, funny. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's great to know. Um, so uh, I guess um, what, I, what I want to know uh, further, and this is, uh, I'm going to stumble over my words and cut this out. Uh, as it regards, what do I want to say? I uh, you, there was a question I was going to ask you, but you you already you said this earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe I'll ask it anyway. Sometimes on this podcast we ask um, if you feel as though you missed out anything by not applying for an academic job, and you already said no uh, at all, even a little bit. You're <laughs> you're nope. Yeah, you're <laughs> twisting your head. Absolutely not. Yep. Yeah. Um, as, a, as an experience, like you missed nothing out. Uh, the experience of uh, <laughs> sitting in miserable hotel rooms at yeah. a uh, midwinter academic conference. Well, why didn't you want that? I, I know it sounds pretty great um, <laughs> when, when they explain you how it works. Um, no, I mean, I, uh, I would say that if there's one thing that I miss, I miss the experience of being on a university campus okay. um, because that's an environment that I really like. Um, uh, and it's just fun and energetic. Yeah. Uh, and I haven't, um, I've worked sort of two blocks away from campuses for the last 12 years, but I uh, haven't uh, actually worked on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, but I uh, do not miss um, teaching, and, and I'm quite certain that uh, the students that I <laughs> taught um, uh, feel the same way. Um, uh, so I don't think the world lost anything there. I, um, uh, I, <laughs> that's very, it's very funny and, and very honest. Uh, I don't sense. miss. Uh, I I hated grading. Um, I uh, think it's the worst too. So uh, I, mean, I understand that. You know, it was uh, when so when I was in graduate school at the University of Texas. I don't know yeah. if it's changed since, but um, uh, when I was there, there was no plus or minus. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, grading. So um, that's so you know at the there was no difference between giving someone an 80 or an 89. It was still a B. Yeah. So, okay. um, uh, so, you know, the, I mean, yeah, grading was a nightmare. Yeah. Um, I always so, think that in classes before, before there are grades, it's like, like sometimes it's like, it's like a wonderful place where people are like learning mm-hmm. like what they want. And then the grades come in and it's just like, it's like, right. like where it becomes very real. And now there's a tangible thing and you could possibly fail the thing. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. It's right. like a prelapsarian thing before grades come in. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and so, uh, I don't miss that. I don't, <laughs> um, I don't know that I have book length ideas. Okay. Um, in my head, I don't know that I'm capable of producing them. So um, I think I think in sort of article length and shorter hmm. um, pieces. And so from a sort of career standpoint, that wouldn't have been uh, terribly useful. How do you know that that was not, I guess that that might be something for mm-hmm. somebody listening. How do you know it was definitely not for you? Uh, so I'd gone to graduate school thinking that it was not for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, the experience of both teaching um, in graduate school and seeing other people go in the job market yeah. uh, made me realize it was not for me. Uh, also, um, I mean, in addition to just sort of the mechanics of, of the job being things that I wasn't interested in, uh, I did not want to not have any control over where I lived. Uh, yeah, okay. Everybody I knew in graduate school. Um, you had to move for the job. Uh, you know, almost everyone not everyone, but the majority of people I know in graduate school who really wanted a tenure track 
teaching job got one, mm-hmm. but it took uh, taking multiple visiting positions yeah. and moving to places that they didn't really want to be and not yeah. knowing how long they would be there. Uh, and I wasn't interested in doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think um, for me, knowing going into graduate school that I probably didn't, didn't want a tenure track teaching job made me enjoy graduate school a lot more because mm. there wasn't this uh, sort of single goal at the end that everything was directed towards. Yeah. And so I wasn't thinking at every turn about, oh, well, how is this going to prepare me for the job market or how is this going to look on my CV? Mm. Or, um, and so that was, um, I, I would really encourage anybody in graduate school in the humanities now, definitely think of tenure track teaching as an outcome yeah, as, okay. as a option, sure. um, but um, it should not be the only thing mm-hmm. um, uh, because just the numbers aren't don't support it. Yeah. So, um, but I think having in mind going in that it's something uh, among a range of potential professional outcomes, um, uh, I think you will take a lot of pressure off yourself and enjoy graduate school more. Mm, that's great. That is something I wanted to ask you, which is what sort of opportunities are you seeing now mm-hmm. outside of the academy that maybe didn't exist while, you know, while you were doing this? Mm. Or, yeah. Uh, so I think um, the rise of digital humanities, um, digital humanities centers, um, uh, publishers looking to present material in digital ways um, is an enormous opportunity that did not exist when I started graduate school or was just sort of only starting Mm -hmm. uh, to exist. Um, So that's sort of a whole new, um, whether it's a field of its own or whether it's sort of sort of something that happens differently in all disciplines. Um, I think there's a lot of debate about that in Mm. DH circles. Um, So that's one thing that I think... um, uh, is a new option. You know, I think there's um, there's been some credential creep uh, as the job crisis in the humanities has intensified. So mm-hmm. uh, people say, oh, well, you can, uh, you know, teach high school or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, work as a public historian at a historic site. Um, and so that means that the people who used to get those jobs with master's degrees mm-hmm. um, are now competing with people with PhDs yeah. for those. And um, so I think there's a question about whether or not that's a good thing. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, although it's, I mean, um, I, I can see that, you know, for historic sites, it's great to have more PhDs um, mm-hmm. uh, on site because it brings a different depth of knowledge. But um, I did analogous to this, but from another, for a more entry level area of publication, I did see a couple years ago. I, I worked while I was going to undergrad, I worked five years at Walmart mm-hmm. in the electronics department. And one of my last years there, I saw a, it wasn't at my Walmart, somebody posted on the internet, but it was a a job ad for uh, someone to work in the front end, like a cashier. Mm -hmm. And it did say bachelor's degree preferred. And as someone who worked at Walmart for five years, there's not a single job there that you need a bachelor's degree to do, or that it would, having that, it would give you a leg up to do anything there. Like, but so, but that is a thing. It's like, I mean, more people are getting all kinds of degrees than ever before. Right. So it just increases the level of right. uh, preparation or, or credentials, I think. Right. Was, yeah. Yeah. And so it means that, uh, you know, it makes things worse for people who haven't uh, gotten a, an undergraduate degree. Um, and, uh, you know, I think um, it's not necessarily that there are more opportunities now for people with 
doctorate degrees in the humanities, what I think is happening but really needs to be happening more is that departments need to be more open to having conversations with their students about what those non-tenure track teaching options are mm-hmm. and helping them prepare for them. Yeah. Um, and I'm seeing, um, you know, some departments uh, are, are, you know, taking steps in that direction. But um, what would be some that you would suggest, I guess? Uh, so uh, the absolute number one most important thing mm-hmm. that uh, anybody in a humanities doctoral program uh, should do uh, if they are thinking about a job outside the academy. This sounds like the best thing you're going to say. So, okay. It's going to be so depressing when I say it. It's really going to be disappointing. Um, (laughs) Learn Excel. Yes. (laughs) Take an accounting course um, because no matter what you do in your career, Mm -hmm. um, even if you do uh, get a tenure track job and you um, go teach at a college or university, you're going to someday be department chair or you're going to organize a conference and you're going to have to know how to put a budget together. And, nothing diminishes the credibility of someone with a humanities degree <laughs> faster in an organization than the look of bafflement uh, on their face when they see a budget. It's like, oh, I don't, what, what are all these numbers? I don't know what to do. Um, uh, and so, like, you don't have to, like, go to the business school and take a hardcore accounting class, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Um, uh, I'm sure there's an arts administration program at most big universities mm-hmm. uh, that, that can teach people this, but... Um, uh, it's just, I cannot, and I didn't do it when I was in graduate school, and every day I wish that I had. I mean, I've <laughs> learned it um, over time, but, um, uh, yeah, just, I mean, it's it's so simple, and it sounds so boring, but it is mm-hmm. so important, and it's just like, no matter what job you have, it's something you need to know how to do. That's great. Um, uh, so, uh, yes, it's the it's the obvious thing and the boring thing, but it's also um, the most useful thing. That's um, in terms of uh, other things that departments can do, um, you know, it's uh, the summer employment opportunities that tend to be available for graduate students um, are typically sort of more of the same, right? It's, mm-hmm. you know, doing research or teaching mm-hmm. a summer school class. And those are great, but they're not teaching you anything new. So um, to the extent that you can work um, uh, during the summers in the private sector, mm-hmm. um, I think people should do that. I think especially for people who've gone to um, – graduate school right out of college, the experience of working um, in a for-profit enterprise, Mm -hmm. um, you know, other than like, you know, Walmart or a restaurant or something. I learned Um, the phrase area of opportunity. That was very useful. Right. I mean, just like, like go work in an office um, uh, uh, where like it matters that you show up on time um, Mm -hmm. and um, uh, (laughs) like you actually have to finish things on time, um, which Mm -hmm. is something academics also aren't great at. Um, (laughs) Catherine's laughing in the background. So uh, that that's getting picked <laughs> up by the microphone. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, and, you know, if possible, work for a small business because you'll just have chances to do a lot more different things. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you will have to um, fix the server when it crashes. You will have to, um, you know, make presentations uh, in front of clients. You will mm-hmm. uh, have to just learn a lot more stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I think any chances that uh, um, graduate students can take to do those kinds of things are helpful Mm. and departments just need to be open to that and they need to understand that they are not um preparing graduate students to do just one thing gotcha Um, yeah because um you know uh for the for the majority of people in graduate programs in the humanities right now they're probably not going to get tenure track teaching jobs Mm -hmm. um -hmm. maybe there will be dramatic changes on the horizon um they uh, that would be kind of surprising, but I mean, I think, mm-hmm. uh, um, and I was lucky. My advisor, um, was, uh, 
extremely supportive of me not wanting to go on the academic job market. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that was partly because he was so alienated from the rest of the academic profession that um, he couldn't imagine anybody wanting to do that for a living. <laughs> um, uh, so he was, uh, he thought that was great. He, yeah. uh, he said like, oh yeah, why would you want to do this? Um, uh, go do something else. So, mm-hmm. um, That's good. You probably got the most honest uh, you know, feedback and, and advice from, from, from him. Yeah, you know, he, um, uh, he was alienated from the rest of the department to the point that, like, his office was in a separate building like, by himself, um, <laughs> which I think was better for everybody. But you know, They bloomed him. Yes. Yes, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah, so, I mean, I think if you are working with people who s- seem to consider it a betrayal, if you talk about um, uh, looking for opportunities other than tenure track positions, um, mm-hmm. you should work with different people because those yeah. folks do not have your best interests in mm-hmm. heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean like that, that would be, I mean the interest of that advice to not encourage someone to take, uh, opportunities outside of the Academy seem would, I don't know, seem to be just reinforcing an ideal that is not the way that the current, uh, market, it is just not the way that it looks like I, 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 I can't understand, um, the like uh, intimidation or judgment from somebody looking outside, but but I, it could only be something like that. Yeah, you know, and I think for some people, um, there's just a very personal identification with their graduate students and with their success. I and um, I think, uh, and hopefully this is changing, but um, you know, I think people, some advisors still feel that if they don't place all of their graduate students in tenure track jobs, that that reflects badly on them. Um, uh, and I think they should be thinking about like how many of their uh, graduate students are uh, emplo- well. employed and yeah. happy, yeah. Um, yeah. which is a, a big mindset shift. That's excellent. I think that is a really nice note to close on. Sure. Uh, and so we're going to end it here. Paul, thank hey. you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. public humanities. Join us for our next season in fall 2018. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast at web.uri.edu slash nextgenphd or find us on iTunes. Look for careers in the public humanities. This podcast was founded by Rachel Basio and Michelle Meek, and this episode has been produced by Ryan Angley and Catherine Winters in conjunction with the University of Rhode Island English Department. Introduction by Ryan Engley and Catherine Winters. Ryan Engley is our editor, and Mark Setta is our sound designer. <laughs>